From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to the Jill Bennett Show. I'm Scott Shantz filling in. Happy Friday. A little smoky out there in the lower mainland today. And uh, the results of a new poll from Abacus Data are in. And not exactly surprising, but I still think quite significant. Majority of respondents, 56%, think that our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, should step down from leadership before the next election. So we would see someone else take on the leadership of the Liberal Party and then run against Pierre Polyev, who will be the leader of the, or is, excuse me, the leader of the Conservative Party. How do you feel about this? Are you still behind Trudeau? Do you think that he can still get it done? Do you think that somebody else should take his place? Do you think it doesn't make a difference because the Conservatives are a shoe in to win anyway? They're polling way ahead. Here now to uh, weigh in and give us some uh, some ideas on this is David Mosscrop. He's a Canadian podcaster, political scientist, columnist, and the author of the book, uh, excuse me, Too Dumb for Democracy. Thanks so much for being here today, David. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So has the shine come off Trudeau just like completely, or do you think that he still has uh, what it takes to get it done? Well, uh, the rubber on the tire is wearing pretty thin. And usually when it wears that thin, you're meant to replace your tires as the only part of your car that should be touching the road, ideally. Um, And you remember back in 2015, 2016, even into 2017, we were talking about how Trudeau and the Liberals were Teflon-coated, right? Nothing would stick to them. And that's true sometimes for politicians until it's not. Then people turn, they get sick, they get tired, they start blaming uh, their problems on you no matter whose fault it really is. And then you're in big trouble. And the Liberals are now firmly in big trouble territory. Yeah, I remember when he got elected for the first time. It was somewhere in maybe like the, the, the first year after he had initially got elected. He was on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. And there was just this, this awe around this guy, you know, like the second coming, you know. And to see how far he's fallen is like... Is this normal for politicians or, or leaders who have been in a position this long? Or is this like more than what you would have expected in his case? I think it's normal. Uh, I think it's almost impossible in politics to maintain popularity for, in the long term. Even figures that many venerate today, uh, Winston Churchill, for instance, uh, you know, face electorates that were electorates that were simply tired of them and turf them. Right. And that's been true in Canada, too. Brian Mulroney was elected with one of the probably the biggest majority in the country's history. And eight years later, his party had two seats. So it happens. It, it, in fact, Pierre Trudeau happened to Pierre Trudeau, 1968. Uh, people got sick of him pretty fast. So, you know, this isn't even the first Trudeau this has happened to. Right. Uh, it's pretty common. It, it, what's extraordinary is that he sort of lasted as long as he has mm. in the current environment and a testament of how good he is at this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we hear, you know, that this is just kind of the the natural pendulum swift. One party takes power for eight to ten years, and then the next party takes power for eight to ten years, and then it just swings back and forth. We we love change, but. Um, what do you think has contributed to, or maybe I'll ask you this first. So the survey results that we saw here, 56%. So you think that basically any politician at this point in their career would probably be surveying somewhat similar to that? I think that most politicians who've been in power for what is it, eight years, pushing nine years, 
who have faced a pandemic, uh, who have faced geopolitical instability, who face an affordability crisis, mm-hmm. uh, rising interest rates, people who can't afford their mortgage, can't afford their groceries, can't get health care, uh, you know, uh, and so on, will start to get sick of you. And of course, there's mixed jurisdiction there, right? It's not just the federal government's fault. And you could argue that, in fact, no government could have done better than the liberals. I don't think that's true, but but you could argue it. And still people will be looking around for a change because they want to blame uh, their problems on you. And to some extent, they're onto something there, right? Um, so I, I don't think anyone would be in a better position given the the challenges we've faced. Yeah, and I mean that is interesting because it's, it almost feels like it's the it's the the job that no one would want. You know, you're hot for a minute, and then as soon as you make a mistake, they they come for you. We come with pitchforks and you know, like uh, torches and such. But after mm-hmm. this, like we'll look back, like we do on Brian Mulroney and Stephen Harper and previous uh, prime ministers, and say, oh, they did. This was what they're known for. They're remembered for like a lot of the good things. That they have done. Um, but is there something other with Justin Trudeau that that maybe contributes to some of these numbers? Like we've talked about all of the the main like you mentioned, you know, affordability crisis, the pandemic, um, all of the type of things. But he also has had this. Um, I, I don't like sort of some of his word choices and sort of mm-hmm. this um, this like uh, I don't want to say ego, but this like air about him that I think is maybe starting to turn some people off. Oh, I think it's ego. Okay, let's say, let's call <laughs> it ego then. <laughs> let's call it ego. I think there's plenty of ego. Uh, the party is to blame for policy reasons as well. Uh, you know, housing has become one of the top concerns for a lot of folks as they struggle to make rent and mortgages, if they can even get rent, a place to rent or a mortgage they can afford in the first place. And the, the party has had eight years to address the crisis uh, because it's been around for a long time. They haven't. And on top of it, Trudeau can be flippant. He can be dismissive. Mm-hmm. He can be uh, wedge politics Elitist. driving. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think people pick up on that. And of course, it's weaponized to an extraordinary degree by opposition parties who do exactly what opposition parties are expected to do, but then some in the, in the case of the conservatives. And it becomes a kind of toxic polarization, which makes things even worse than they would have to be. So everyone's kind of bound up in the same battle. But I don't think Trudeau does himself any favors with the way he sometimes speaks to people and demeans people and uh, uh, over time that irritates even liberals you know one of the notable things about that poll was that of those who voted liberal in in 2021 something like a third of them want Trudeau to go so it's even liberals who are saying this certainly yeah so I guess I'll maybe sort of wrap it up with this first of all a do you think that there is any chance that he actually does step down or vacates the position previous to another election and if so who would take his place well, so I, genuinely, I don't know. I suspect, in fact, I'm fairly sure that there's been polling on this, including by the liberal side. I don't have a doubt for a second. Uh, I think he's fairly entrenched. He's going for four in a row, which no one's done since Wilfrid Laurier over 100 years ago. Uh, it's a long shot, uh, but I think they, the liberals must think, and Trudeau must think, he's their best shot at it, and that nobody else can do better. And that might be true. So I don't think he's going to be moving anytime soon. In fact, if they wanted to, they would get rid of him now so they could have someone new. Because the last time someone tried to switch late in a mandate and bring someone on was Kim Campbell in the Mulroney years. 
and that didn't go super well. Say, we know so how I that think, went. Yeah, <laughs> I think they don't want to push it too far, but I think he's in this for the long haul, and he's going to roll the dice, and we're all going to be left to see what happens. All right, David Moskrup, he's a Canadian podcaster, political scientist, columnist, and author of the 2019 book Too Dumb for Democracy. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks, having. Sean sitting in for Jill Bennett. Hope your Friday is going fantastic. Uh, a lot of talk about wildfires still in our province and the current climate crisis, how it's affecting that, how this has kind of been a thing over the last couple of years and it continues and it's going to continue. A lot of people talking about how this is, to use a terrible phrase, the new normal. This is the, we need to be prepared for this every summer. We've talked about um, having an emergency preparedness kit, an evacuation kit, but what about alerts. You know, we get uh, we have an alert system, a weather alert system for like extreme storms, like earthquakes, uh, tornadoes, that type of thing. Do you know anyone? Have you heard from anyone? Or maybe you did yourself get some sort of an alert about a forest fire, a wildfire, because apparently that's supposed to happen, but maybe it doesn't necessarily work exactly the way it's supposed to. Here now to uh, help us understand a little bit more, my guest is Monica Auer from the Canada's Forum for Research and Policy and Communications. Thanks so much for being here, Monica. I appreciate it. Thanks for the invitation. So as I understand it, the CRTC says that the National Public Alerting System uh, is established to warn the public about imminent or possible dangers such as floods, tornadoes, hazardous materials, fires, and other disasters. So did people not get warned in the Okanagan about these wildfires? Well, it's unclear whether they were warned or not, because we haven't had any kind of review since 2014 about how well our emergency alert system is working. Okay. That would that could be the responsibility of the CRTC, since it sets the policy for broadcast notifications and for wireless notifications on your phone. We just don't know what's happening. Right. Yeah, I um, have a bunch of friends that live in the Okanagan, and I haven't heard um, I haven't heard anything about sort of an alert sort of system. So do you think that the system that we have needs to be sort of upgraded or revamped to include, uh, make sure that we're including all the necessarily alerts or perhaps even broaden that communication? Absolutely. And one way to start would be to ensure that, for instance, Someone somewhere is taking responsibility to publish the data we need to evaluate how to improve the system. We can't just go in and say, oh, let's improve the system without knowing if there are problems. However, we don't have current data establishing whether there are any problems, and we don't have that data because there's no specific single party responsible for monitoring this. Okay, so uh, like what would I guess what would it look like if once we got that data and we went through and like changed it? Like what would you envision um, a, a successful working alert system looking like? I guess the first thing obviously is that we'd like to prevent if or at least limit the loss of life, the loss of, of property. Of course, we would like to do that. But we'd also like to have a system that's open, transparent and accountable. So we know if it is failing, how to improve it, and who should be doing the improving. We rely on the CRTC, for instance, to regulate radio and TV stations, which are also supp- supposed to provide alerts. Are they doing that? We don't actually know because the CRTC doesn't publish those data. The CRTC also regulates wireless telephone companies that are supposed to provide these alerts. 
Are they doing it? We don't know because we see no data. But the first thing is at least to start finding out what questions to ask, of whom we should be asking the questions, and then figuring out where the problems are. Has, has your organization been in touch with the CRTC or with Environment Canada about this? We actually started looking into the whole thing of emergency preparedness in about, well, it was pre-pandemic, in fact, because our concern is that at that time they were already starting to shut down the analog transmission towers that broadcast radio and TV signals and alerts. If you switch to a system where people can only get television or radio sometimes through cable or through the Internet, what happens when those systems fail? What's our backup plan? It used to be that we could rely on the CBC for that, but the CBC itself has had problems. Yeah, I know that um, when I have found myself in circumstances like this, I was in a Soyuz uh, in July, I've talked about this a bit, when uh, wildfire broke out there, and my sort of way that I kind of navigated that was to pull open my Twitter feed and just constantly refresh it. You know, I'd put a little sort of hashtag, uh, you know, fires, Osoyas fires, and basically all the search terms that I needed and just kept updating that. And I was getting sort of like right up to the second information as people in the community and various organizations were, were tweeting about it. That's kind of how I got my information the quickest. But if it was my parents or, you know, so, any other person who doesn't use Twitter or X, as it's called now, to the same degree that I do, like, how would they be getting their their information? Do you have any any info on that? Like, where do people get most of their, their information in an emergency like this? I think uh, not so much in terms of emergencies, but just in general. People still continue to rely on what we think of as the conventional media, which would be uh, television and radio stations for up-to-date uh, information. These days, of course, Internet, Twitter, slash X, yes, we have that too. The issue is not that, that, that they're competing with each other. My concern is what happens if one or the other fails? Yes. What's the backup plan? If the Internet goes down, for instance, you know, scientists are predicting that there are going to be heavy sunspot activity in the next 12 months. Sunspots have the potential to knock out Internet. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm just saying I'm reading the forecast. Right. Suppose that happens. What do you do then? Another thing, of course, is you, you, you mentioned the you know, older people, including myself, even though I'm looking at, a, at, at the Internet right now. The point is that there are people who cannot afford the Internet and don't have it, who don't want the Internet and don't have it, or who don't understand how to use it and don't have it. So yeah. what do we, how do, are, are we just going to say alerts are for those who are high-tech and well-informed and well-educated? Surely not. We want to ensure that all Canadians are protected. That, that last point is absolutely the one for me. You know, like I, I mentioned, my parents, they all have cell phones and stuff, but none of them are on Twitter. None of them would even know where to start when it came to using that. So to your point, why don't, especially in circumstances like this, where we're talking about people's lives and livelihoods, um, their property, these type of things, why don't we use every tool at our disposal? Precisely the question. And as I said at the outset, I think one of the main issues is that there is no single party responsible for ensuring a system that works, that is open, transparent, accountable, right. but effective above all. If we don't have anybody who's responsible, and in this case, for the alert system, we've got the 13 levels of government, we've got all radio and TV stations, we've got Telmorex, we've got all wireless uh, telephone companies, 
But which one do we hold to account? So when everybody is responsible. No one is. Right. So let me ask you, Monica, what what is what are we doing going forward? What is your organization go, doing going forward uh, to change this? Well, I think our organization is looking into filing an application with the CRTC to propose, first of all, a review of the system with numbers to find out if it is working, and also to ensure that Canadians have a place to go when it doesn't work. If it's not working, who do they tell that to? Who do they advise? By the way, I didn't get an alert. Why not? Yeah, excellent. Okay, well, I guess that's the the place to start, and it does sound like pretty clearly that we'd need to do uh, some work there. Monica Auer, she's Executive Director, Forum and Research and Policy and Communications. Thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. Let's talk about back-to-school shopping. It's right around the corner. The signs have been up in the stores for weeks, and people are spending. They are spending money. One of the numbers that has been floating around, you might have seen this, it's uh, over $500 per child. That's what Canadians are spending to send kids back to school, and this is on all sorts of things. And, uh, like, I can't even, it's just, it's nuts with the way that inflation and everything is just, like, rampant and out of control. Control. So uh, I wanted to get some more info on this, and so here now to talk about uh, a recent survey done by the Retail Council of Canada is a spokesperson, Michelle Wasilishin. Excuse me if I mispronounced your name there, Michelle, but um, let me ask you this. We'll start with this. That number, is that more than we spent last year? Is that less than we spent last year? Where do we net out on that? Well, we're seeing that they're going to spend about the same as last year. So Retail Council of Canada does an annual back-to-school shopping survey. Now, the one thing that has come up this year is that people are probably going to spend about the same as last year, but they're going to spend it more carefully. And the interesting spending category that came up in this year's survey is stationary. Last year, stationary didn't even make the top spending category list, and this year it came in at number one. So 60.8% of Canadians said that they're going to be purchasing stationary products and that also that they're going to be deferring purchases of some of those higher-priced items. So this kind of shows us what we've been seeing throughout the year is we do know that Canadians still have continued to spend, even though they have considerations with inflation and those kinds of things, they're just doing so in a much more thoughtful, mindful, careful way. Right. So when you say stationary products, is that like school supplies or is that something specific in the school supplies department? Uh, It would be school supplies. Um, And so it could be books, it could be puns, pencils, you know, those kinds of things. So anything that would fall into the stationary um, category outside of, apparel outside of electronics those are separate categories so yes i'm thinking of notebooks pencils pens coloring crayons those kinds of things and do we have any insight as to why like if this wasn't on the on the list last year and now it's like number one what has shifted that has caught like are we more concerned about education or something like is there a reason Oh, I think we're more concerned about prices and spending um, i think we're more concerned about inflation and so I think it's really indicative of, of showing that people still will spend on the necessities that their kids need for back to school, but it's going to be on those lower priced items. 
One of the other things that could come into play is we've seen that um, the bigger ticket items that I talked about, so furniture, electronics, shoppers have said that they're going to defer those purchases in, in most circumstances. Now, one of the reasons could be is that if you look at electronics, that was really high uh, over the past couple of years during the pandemic. Lots of people went out and they bought those things. They had discretionary income to spend on those items. And we expect those items to last a lot longer. And so one of the one of the things could be that those items were purchased over the past year or two or even three and that, you know, they're still working, right? They don't need to be replaced right right now. But I definitely think it's indicative of people just, um, you know, spending, but spending carefully and making sure that their kids are going back to school with some new items. But, um, you know, perhaps the, the lower priced items. Right. Yeah, I know. Excuse me. When and during my sort of back to school years, my parents made a concerted effort just to reuse stuff, whether it was like hand me down clothes or even just go through the school supplies and and find you know what could still be used and still you know make the cut. Not even because they didn't want to spend them, like didn't have the money to spend, but like just out of principle, you know that we should be reusing stuff. Does that still exist, or are people like, no, my kids need to have as much new gear as possible? Well, we didn't cover that in the survey, but I think everything that you said there still makes sense. And, you know, another thing, too, is that when we think of back-to-school shopping, it really is kind of a six- to eight-week event. People actually continue to do back-to-school shopping all the way through the month of September, and that's because their kids might come home from school, and they might have a list of things that need to be purchased. And so sometimes parents will wait. There's, you know, maybe no need to go out and buy all of these things right now when you don't know specifically what your child may need. And so we do see that back-to-school spending continues right throughout the month of September. Yeah, I remember my parents used to famously say, why don't you go to school and see what all the kids are wearing before, and then come home so that we don't buy, like, last year's cool thing and then you get to school and decide that you don't want to wear it anymore? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, my kids, I have two kids going back to school as well. And, uh, you know, they're too young to care about what they're wearing. But what you just said, you know, they don't need a new backpack. They just got a new backpack halfway through the year last year. So we'll be using that. Um, I always go straight for the shoes. They outgrow those quickly. And uh, so I think everyone is just a little bit more careful about how they're spending their dollar um, for back to school shopping and making sure that they're getting the most um, from it that they can. Okay. And maybe what about this? Are you seeing like any sort of um, like uh, over the pandemic, there was definitely a bit of like uh, inventory issues around some of this stuff is because of back to school is such a big uh, shopping season. Any concerns around that? Very little. And so that's another difference this year. It's a good one that you just pointed out. So over the past couple of years, we've seen that people were going to start their back-to-school shopping um, really, really early. And that's because we were seeing massive shortages on store shelves. This week, our respondents said that they plan to make their purchases two to four weeks before the start of school returns. And that's because we no longer have those supply uh, chain challenges for the most part. And so our, our shelves are well-stocked. So we are seeing that people are going to wait a little bit closer to the return of school. So, you know, perhaps starting a week or two ago and continuing for the next week and then through the month of September, but very, very different than a, uh, a couple of years ago. The other big difference that we're seeing this year versus last year 
is people really intend to shop in stores. So for the past couple of years, we saw a heavy, heavy jump in online sales. This year, we are seeing almost double, 80% of respondents versus 41 last year will shop at bricks and mortars retailers within their neighborhoods instead of purchasing their items online. Online shopping is still really important. People use it to do their research. But when you think of back-to-school shopping, probably your own experience too, it really is traditionally a family outing. You take your kids, they can try on their shoes, they can pick the color of backpack that they want. So we're seeing a massive double uh, of that number uh, this year in 2023. Yeah, that is huge, especially, I think it's just like we kind of got realized like online shopping is convenient, but there is something kind of fun maybe that we missed about being in the store. And this will just be my final question. We just have like a quick minute left here. Do you expect or do you have any insight? Like, is this going to continue through the holiday shopping season, which I'm sure you're gearing up for? Well, so we, we do do an annual holiday shopping survey. That's something that we're going to be looking at over the next month. But even if you look at our one from 2022, some of these trends that we're talking about now were indicative then. And so we did see last year that people were also returning to stores to shop. Lots of people like to go to the stores because they like to touch and feel the products. They like to get ideas for gifts, those kinds of things. We also saw that people last year were going to spend about the same, but again, they were going to do so in a more mindful way. And so perhaps they weren't buying for as many people. Maybe they were buying less gifts for the people that they bought for. And so, again, I think people are really mindful about what they're spending their money on. They were really looking for more meaningful gifts as opposed to just one-offs. And I don't know yet because we haven't completed our survey, but I expect that we'll see more of that in the year to come. Scott Schantz filling in for Jill Bennett on your Friday, and we're talking about money. It's a subject that I am uh, learning to talk about more, and I enjoy talking about it because it feels like empowering. You know, once you sort of get some of that stuff into your brain and you realize like, oh, I actually did this and it worked. And now I have this sort of like sense of accomplishment and freedom and stuff. Um, I've heard that money is a tool. That's the way I've heard it said. So you should just learn to like use it well. Like here's a miter saw. If you don't know how to use it, you're not going to make any good sort of wood projects. But if you do know how to use your miter saw, you can make some really incredible things. So learn how to use it well. And that's kind of what I've been trying to do. And uh, joining us now to uh, talk money is Murray Baker. He's manager of financial empowerment at Family Services of Greater Vancouver and author of The Debt Free graduate. Uh, September is right around the corner. A lot of people are heading off to university, which is usually when, oh my gosh, I'm kind of on my own and I have to figure out finances and rent and grocery shopping and all of these things that I've never had to do before. Do you sort of find that to be the case, Murray, that like this time when people sort of go back to school or leave, leave the nest or move out is kind of like, whoa, the finance thing gets real, right? Absolutely. It, the reality hits. And, you know, just as, as you prepare getting books and your clothing ready for going off to school and your furniture, you also need to prepare financially, too. So the first thing that I always recommend uh, students and parents do is sit down and come out with a financial roadmap. So figure out, you know, what are my costs going to be during the year? My fixed costs and then my variable costs. So fixed costs being my tuition um, also things such as rent, phone, etc., and then your variable costs, of course, things like groceries, and maybe your, your utilities fluctuate as well. So 
have that sense and also figure out what money do I have currently and what money is going to be coming in. So maybe you have a bursary coming in during the year or maybe there's a scholarship uh, coming up and then you have your savings from the summer and figure out, do I have enough to last me throughout the year? And if not, how can I make up the shortfall? So maybe it involves getting a a part-time job for a few hours a week or maybe it it involves uh, applying for more bursaries or scholarships. But having that sense ahead of time helps avoid costly mistakes when you realize in February you're out of money and have to scramble uh, either putting uh, your expenses on credit card or having to work uh, long hours on a part-time job at the end of the year to make ends meet. Or, of course, with parents, the dreaded phone call back to to mom and dad saying, I'm broke, I need more money. (laughs) Yeah, that third one was uh, my go-to strategy throughout university, (laughs) was to book a meeting with my father and explain to him why I needed him to write me a check. And thankfully, he's a very generous individual and uh, helped me out where he could, like I think a lot of parents do. But one of the things that has helped me even more is like my dad and other, you know, adults in my life sort of taught me as I went along, like this is a lesson where you can learn about like how to manage your finances better. So hopefully you don't make some of the same mistakes that other people do. Do you think that parents need to take a bigger role in teaching kids and and teenagers and adolescents about uh, better financial management? Like, you know, one of the things that it sort of, it occurs in the meme world. It's like, why didn't I learn how to do a tax return when I was in in the public school system, like why don't we? Why don't why is money education a thing that is not more talked about? Absolutely, I think agree more, and it should be as fundamental in school as as math and English, uh, because it's a, it's a skill set that you're going to use your entire life. I mean, yes, it's nice to learn poetry in school, but let's face it. Um, learning financial matters is going to be much more practical throughout your lifetime. So. It's a great opportunity at the start of the school for parents and, and their kids to have that conversation. So figuring out what, what are our expectations. Do, as parents, do we expect you to work a little bit during the year? Um, are, are your parents, are they going to be able to help out throughout the year? Um, and also looking at even things like if you have money saved up for university and you're not going to need it all right away, Put some of that money into, say, uh, a six-month guaranteed investment certificate and earn 4 or 5% interest on that. So putting your money to work to maximize what you get out of it. And I think those are skills that parents can really teach their kids and also even teaching them the fundamentals of investing in terms of, you know, what's a stock, how does it work, uh, what's a mutual fund, so that they start to build these skills gradually when they're young. Yeah, I, you know, to your point of like, you know, it's great to learn poetry. I love studying the arts. You know, I consider myself a creative artist, super creative person. I love all of that stuff. But I also really wish and value, I wish I'd learned more when I was younger. And I value the education that I have sort of around these things. And I don't know if it was just this idea of like, oh, you're too young, you wouldn't grasp it, it feels complicated and stuff. But it really doesn't have to be some of those basic principles. And I also found that, like, once I started to get it, because you're seeing that, even if it's like four, five, six percent return, it's really easy to get excited and passionate about it once you're starting to see your bank account grow. Absolutely. And you, and you start to see your money grow and you understand it. And, you know, even 
I, I know some parents get their kids involved in investing when they're young, and they may not, you know, getting a kid excited about uh, investing, say, in a railway stock may not be exciting, but maybe investing in a company like Apple or Amazon or something may kind of tweak their interest, and they might uh, find that very interesting to see how you can actually own a piece of the company and let that money grow over time, whatever whatever type of stock it is you invest in or whatever mutual fund. So I think that's important. The other thing that parents can really do is incentivize their kids to save. So, you know, when a, a, a student is working a summer job, the parent, rather than just give them money outright at the end of the summer to go to school, say, okay, for every dollar you save, I'm going to match that dollar for dollar. And uh, so if you save 2000 or 3000 at the end of the school year, I'm going to match that and give you two or 3000 And that way you have that incentivized saving. And it also is an incentive not to spend because a student would say, if I spend $100 on that jeans, that pair of jeans, I'm really spending 200 because I'm going to lose out of that $100 contribution from my parents. Murray Baker is Manager of Financial Empowerment at Family Services of Greater Vancouver and the author of The Debt-Free Graduate. Thanks so much for joining us today, Murray, and uh, thanks for the advice. It's really encouraging and it's empowering. You know, we start small and we go on from there. Uh, Thank you again for, for spending some time with us today. Thanks very much for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.